Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Foreign Affairs. I'm your host, Terry Edwards, and I'm joined alongside Ronan McCarthy and Jalen Williams. Ronan and Jalen are both scholars that have researched today's topic extensively. Ronan, hello. Hello, Terry. Glad you could have me on your show today. Of course. Jalen, great to have you on the show. Thank you as well. Today, we'll be discussing the Yemen Civil War, a conflict that has dragged on since 2013 and has brought about one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world. And in order to fully appreciate what's going on, we will need a timeline. Now, let's go all the way back to 2011. At the time, Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the world. Rates of unemployment are sky high, and more than 40% of the country is living with under two bucks a day. The country's already divided, with two regions whose vibrant secessionist movements intend to separate from their mother country. Most Yemen citizens are removed from the elitist and self-interested political system. It is around this time that a revolutionary movement erupts across Yemen. However, contrary to one might think, the cause of this political revolution is not an exacerbation of the issues that already face Yemen. Jalen, can you tell us more about what sparks this movement? Well, in the months preceding the Yemen protests, several revolutionary movements had been taking place in nearby countries. You see, the first such movements was in Turkey, which began in December 2010. Soon after, other Middle Eastern nations followed the steps of the Turkish counterparts. Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, or even Syria all had their version of what came to be known as the Arab Spring. And in the early months of 2011, Yemen added its name to the list. Protests have been a part of Yemen society for decades. As you, see, as you said, Terry, poverty, famine, or even lack of political power were already present and occasionally drove Yemeni citizens to the streets. However, in 2011, these protests reached a new height. Thousands of protesters camped outside Sanya University for months, and cities across Yemen saw their citizens express their discontent. And these protests, uh, Ronan, what did they achieve? Well, the goal of the protesters was to change the Yemen political system and ensure political power for all citizens. And sure enough, they achieved this goal, Thierry, you see, in 2011, several months after the onset of the Arab Spring, the Yemen president, Alid Abdullah Saleh, stepped down and transferred power to his vice president, Ab, Ab Hadi. Hadi was to be an interim president for a year before the round of democratic elections would elect a new leader. And so when uh, Hadi, which replaces Saleh, and Saleh has been in power for more than 20 years, so it's a huge uh, polit- shift in political leadership. How is Hadi successful in leading Yemen? Um, Well, unfortunately, Thierry, he's not really successful. And despite several modest reforms, the situation did not improve. His popularity declined rapidly as rumors of corruption arose, and people began realizing that the elite's classes had huge influence over the new president. The discontent only increased as the terrorist group led by al-Qaeda took advantage of the lack of political leadership and repeatedly attacked Yemen. This climate of instability ultimately led to the rise of the rebel group named the Houthis, um, and this marked the start of the civil war in 2013. And so now that yet another conflict uh, adds itself to the, to the long list of conflicts in the Middle East, um, how have foreign powers reacted to this? So many countries have interviewed intervened in the conflict. On one side, Iran had been supporting the rebels. On the other side, Saudi Arabia led a coalition along with eight other Arab nations supporting the Yemen government. The coalition, in turn, is supported by the United States, 
France and the United Kingdom. So let me summarize what you said. Um, are you saying, Jalen, that we have the Houthis rebels against the government and that the Houthis are supported by Iran while the government is supported by Saudi Arabia and its coalition and France, UK and the US? Yes. Wow. And that's that's somewhat ironic, isn't it? I mean, this movement whose goal was to help a country come out of extreme poverty in conditions that, I mean, at the time, nobody thought could worsen, led to a conflict that, I mean, worsened the war, didn't it? That's absolutely correct, Terry. Um, the Civil War has now dragged on for six years, and the economic, and political, economic political, and human ra- landscape in Yemen is despicable. In addition to the Civil War, Yemen also had to deal with repeated attacks from both ISIS and al-Qaeda. All while the citizens are suffering from one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world. Currently, 75% of the population is in need of humanitarian aid, and more than half the population is on the brink of starvation. This has forced more than 3 million people to flee out of Yemen. And the list goes on. I mean, I have a few numbers here that just sound devastating. 20 people in Yemen died day due to war disease. 14.8 million people are without basic health care. Two million people are without clean drinking water. And actually, this has created an number of cholera of over a million people. I mean, there has also been an increase in child marriage and soldiers since the beginning of the war. Needless to say, the crisis in Yemen is despicable. And, John, I'm pretty confident when I say that, you know, and I assume that these terrible living conditions have caused many to flee from Yemen. You're absolutely correct. From the beginning of the civil war in 2013, there's been a huge flux of Yemen citizens fleeing the war, searching for better living conditions. And the numbers of both refugees and internally displaced people are only increasing. As of 2019, there are 2.3 million IDPs within Yemen and more than 190,000 refugees. It is also important to highlight that these numbers do not include individuals that haven't been censored and that the actual number is likely higher. So by censored, you mean census? They haven't been censored, correct? Yes. And this refugee crisis adds itself to the long list of countries whose current conditions force inhabitants to find another space to live. Syria, Afghanistan, Colombia, the Congo all share this one refugee problem. Jalen, tell us more. Where do Yemen refugees go? So many are going to the country directly to the right of Yemen, Oman. In fact, estimates of the number of Yemen refugees in Oman bring that number to more than 50,000. However, the main destination for Yemen refugees is across the Gulf of Aden in Djibouti, with more than 90,000 Yemen refugees living there. And that seems counterintuitive. I mean, why would Yemen refugees favor crossing an ocean, I mean, the Gulf of Aden, over passing through a land border? Isn't the latter option safer? The trip to Oman might seem less perilous, but the destination is not. It turns in terms of its treatment of refugees, Djibouti is much more appealing than Oman. And why is that? The Djibouti government recently adopted a new law that allows refugees to reside in urban areas with more institutions to support them. I mean, so could you say then that the conditions of Yemen refugees are better than the conditions they had in Yemen? I mean, I wouldn't go that far, Terry. The overwhelming majority of Yemen refugees, whether it be Oman or Djibouti, still live in refugee camps. And the conditions in these camps are deplorable. To a lack of food and water adds itself the danger of contracting diseases. So yes, Djibouti and Oman are safer because of these countries aren't embroiled in civil war. But the living conditions remain well under what might one call, call basic needs. 
And just to add on to that, last year, a team of British journalists traveled to refugee camps across Yemen and interviewed some of the locals. Hearing about the situation only confirms what you're saying, Jalen. I mean, their conditions are just deplorable. Let's listen, for example, to Rabua Maghrebi, an internally displaced Yemen citizen now living in a refugee camp. We had to escape the war. Our life has turned upside down. We can't afford a decent meal. We're now begging to eat and feed our children. We're living in the streets on charity. Wow, just unacceptable. Ronan, try and bring our spirits up. What has been the reaction of the international community to this crisis, and what have they done to help? Well, the international community has identified the need for intervention to help with the crisis in Yemen. The UN, in fact, calls it the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And in turn, many actions have been taken to support Yemen citizens in need. In 2018, the UN raised more than $2.8 billion in funds for the crisis. This year, they are seeking more than $3 billion. And have these funds um, helped the situation in Yemen? Well, this is a tough question. And the short answer is yes. Much of the money has been spent in food and water supplies for needy Yemen citizens. And there is no doubt that these resources have benefited people, many people in Yemen. But the longer answer is more complicated. Because of the conflict, uh, many of these supplies have not reached the populations in need. In fact, countries such as Saudi Arabia have occasionally volunteered, voluntarily interfered with the provisions for military or political purposes. One example of this was in 2017. If you remember correctly, the Saudis support the Yemen government against the Houthi rebels. And two years ago, the Houthis decided to strike the Saudis by launching a missile at an airport in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis then retaliated by preventing humanitarian aid planes from landing in zones controlled by the Houthis. And this idea um, of you know the military conflict getting in the way of other things seems to get to a larger point. I mean, from what I've listened to, couldn't you say ultimately that the military conflict in Yemen is the root of the human humanitarian crisis, and in turn of the refugee crisis. You're exactly right, Thierry. The U.S. ambassador to Yemen, Matthew Tuller, has in fact state has in fact stated just this: in order to tackle the refugee crisis, we must solve the humanitarian crisis. And in order to solve the humanitarian crisis, we must solve the military conflict. And that's a crucial point. I mean, in these times where many countries are suffering from these refugee crises. I think it's important to be able to take some distance away from the direct humanitarian problems and identify the larger source of the issue. That's right. One could say that there is a fundamental issue in which the way we look about uh, refugees across the world and the fact that the conditions of refugees are people living in the countries as a problem to solve, when in fact they are the consequence of another larger problem. If we get to the root cause, then we can address the, the humanitarian crisis, but without Going back to the casual chain, or the causal chain, solving these crises is nearly impossible. Providing food, water, or even shelter are only temporary and partial solutions. And if you think about it, this has great implications. I mean, if you accept that a refugee crisis is the consequence of something more general, such as war or famine, you recognize that it can take place in basically any community. There's nothing about the geographical location of the Middle East that drives people away from Syria or Yemen. It's the military conflict that pushes them out. And military conflict is a possibility in many, many other areas of the world. I mean, just look at the states. We're looking right now at the possibility of nuclear conflict with North Korea. And if that comes to take place, we would probably be looking at a huge outflux of American citizens looking for a safe place to live. That's absolutely right, Terry. But yeah, but so going back to Yemen, once we have identified this root cause, being the military conflict, 
How do we go about solving it? Well, the international consensus today is that the war can't be resolved militarily and that deploying one side will likely not bring about the end of the conflict. On the contrary, the solution ought to be political. The Houthis and the government need to reach an agreement that will end the war. In the past, this has seemed like near impossibility. When the UN tried to organize a meeting between the, the warning parties in September of 2018, the Houthis declined to attend. Fortunately, since several encouraging groups have ta been taken in this direction, in December 2018, both parties even agreed to a ceasefire. And this has led to several UN officials declaring, as late as March 2019, that they are optimistic that they will, they will be able to negotiate an end to the war. However, we must balance this optimism with the fact that the Houthis and the government have violated on several occasions and the conditions of ceasefire, and that the climate in Yemen remains very tense. That's interesting. But I assume there's also a second part to this crisis, being that the conditions of refugees that fled Yemen, rather than certainly displaced, are also terrible. Jalen, would you agree that the second, you know, there's the conflict in Yemen and then the conflict outside of Yemen? Of course. I mean, look at what is happening at the U.S. border with scores of refugees from Central and South America being detained in overcrowded facilities working for a hearing. This is a real question of how do we deal with these refugee populations. In Yemen, the great majority of refugees and IDPs live in refugee camps across Yemen, Djibouti, and Oman. The conditions of these refugees are, as we have said, deplorable. That's not all of it. The future of these individuals is really unclear. Most do not know if they will be granted asylum in their host country, or they will be able to go back to Yemen. And that's crazy to think about. I mean, for these individuals that flee their own communities and are now left looking for new ones, how does the idea of home have any meaning? I mean, Jalen, do these people have a home? Not really. For most of them, these refugee camps is the closest they have to home, so at home, which is very unfortunate. But another interesting idea to think about is how do flows of refugees within a country affect the home of the people living there. That's very, very true. The people living in certain cities of Djibouti, where many Yemen refugees have been granted permission to live. I mean, there are 90,000 Yemen citizens in the country with a population of less than a million. So for these native populations, the shift in demographic can be heard to take in, hard to take in, and they can often be hostile to the Yemen groups. In fact, many Yemen refugees in Djibouti have left the city because of this hostility favoring the refugee camps. That's really surprising considering the conditions of the camps. But so then, what are, what are solutions that we have, sorry, what are solutions that we have to better the conditions of the people in these camps? Well, there's the donations and foreign aid, which are a huge part. Like we said earlier, the UN has already raised billions of US dollars to help the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And this money has helped many communities get across to food, water, or even education. And it is important to highlight that education is a crucial part of this, and that providing a high school or even middle school education to kids of refugees offers them a pipeline to succeed and prosper. So money helps. What about the law? Are there any legal reforms or measures that could help these refugee populations? I mean, how do we work towards granting a future to these people? There are legal ways to do this. We talked about Djibouti earlier and why it is an attractive destination for many Yemen citizens fleeing their war. Like we said, it is Djibouti lawmakers' policy to provide urban spaces to Yemen citizens that 
has lured many of them to their nation. <clears throat> and this is because interrogating refugee populations... Inter- integrating me. Yes. In- integrating? Yeah. yeah. Refugee populations within the city gives them better access to institutions that can support them and help them grow. It creates more opportunities for food, jobs, and education. We must accept refugee populations and following the steps of Djibouti recognize our international responsibility for helping them. And helping these populations means interrogating them. Integrating, you mean. Integrating, yes. (laughs) I get the joke now. Providing asylum, shelter, and education. And so it is this combination of reforms aimed at integrating refugee populations and financial support that provides them with the basic needs that will tackle a large part of this refugee crisis. That's really interesting. Legal support to integrate refugee fam- refugee communities, and then financial aid to direct you know support them in the moment for the lack of resources. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Ronnie Jalen, thank you for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Thierry, for having me on the show. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Of course.